I'm Rachel, the creative director for Ram Dass's Love Serve Remember Foundation, and I'd like to welcome you to our Inner Academy, a virtual Dharma Hall where our family of wisdom teachers will help you navigate your daily life by bringing ancient wisdom into a modern context. With over 200 hours of audio and video teachings, meditations, and practices from teachers like Ram Dass, Krishna Dass, Sharon Salzberg, Jack Kornfield, Roshi Joan Halifax, Joseph Goldstein, and many more, the Inner Academy is your core resource for finding balance, presence, and navigating the ups and downs of your daily life. The Inner Academy has guidance for every step of your journey. Choose from an annual or monthly membership and gain access to past and future courses, retreat replays, virtual community, and much more. If you've been familiar with Love Server Member Foundation for a while, you'll know that most of our offerings are given freely or on a sliding scale basis. So when you subscribe to the Inner Academy, you're paying it forward and bolstering our ability to continue creating accessible offerings for all in the future, as Ramdas wished for us to do. Be here now and start your journey with Ramdas's Inner Academy today. For more, visit ramdas.org forward slash Inner Academy. Welcome to Lama Suryadas's Awakening Now podcast. We are very pleased to share with you Lama's unique illumination of the awakened awareness teachings. If you are interested in supporting Lama Suryadas's podcast, please go to beherenownetwork.com/suryadas. The awareness practice that I'm emphasizing and teaching this week, that we're practicing and exploring and studying, practicing this week, treasured, just being through, seeing through, cutting through, literally, in the form of sky gazing. This morning, going into that with a few more of the pith instructions from our lineage masters, the quintessential pithy boiled down tips and pointers called pith instructions from our lineage masters, like the six Dalai Lamas. Great pith instruction about the lightning-like upward gaze, flicking your eyes up and down and then resting in the view, nothing more to do. Not looking for anything. It's kind of early form of EMDR. I can't remember what that means, but it has something to do with it. Eye movement, yes, thank you. To break up the mental formations the clinging, the fixation, the holding patterns, the stuckness to get us out of our comfort zone. Having a good meditation here. Mm. So good. That's fine. But maybe there's a little kind of dozing or or dazing, dazedness in that instead of sky gazing, luminous and fresh, precise, wakeful and attentive and very present with presence of mind, not absent-mindedly sleepwalking through life. Mindfulness means presence of mind, the opposite of mindlessness. Sleepwalking through life, having all kinds of so-called accidents. Although there's no such thing as accidents, everything has its causes. So, during our practice, we began with a little uh, homeopathic dose of breath and energy work from the six yogas tradition of Tibet, the Vajrayana yogas. Maybe you remember 
the three breathings and the big out breath and the ah, and we could augment that more into nine breathings or alternate nostril breathing. Sometimes we practice or uh, breath holding, kumbhaka, bumchen, different language terms. The vase breath, as translators call it, the pot belly stove breath, as I call it, holding it down here in your hara, coming down out of the conning tower of your head into your heart, into your hara, into your body, holding it there, floating on the sea of prana. So I'm not going into all that today, just mentioning it. The breathing, especially emphasizing the releasing, the relaxing, the letting go, the emptying ourselves, and yet still being present. Dying to ourselves, every breath, out-breath, a little relinquishment, a little out-death. Dying to our habitual self and reference points and selfing and reifying and concretizing and, mem- and memory, which creates our whole self-story and, and, and history of ourselves. You know, I am a legend in my own mind. <laughs> Imaho. <sighs> This moment, only moment, no need for memory. When we go at, off the cushion, we might need memory, yes. But right now, no need for memory or self or name, rank, and serial number or address or your resume or anything else. That whole baggage train of excess baggage that we're dragging along all the time. No wonder why we're exhausted. Ah. Upstream from concepts. In the Mahamudra teachings, the translators say, it's... Between thoughts, look at the space between thoughts. Yet there's still something. Lucid. I'm not a fan of the between in Dzogchen. It's more like see through the thoughts, but this is just finger painting, just pointing. You need to look into it and experience for yourself how it is for you, where it is, what it is, how it is, who's experiencing what around here, who's on first. Not just between thoughts or feelings, or moods, or sounds, but everything equally transparent, translucent, interwoven, transvalescence, floating, <laughs> rainbow-like, there, not there, simultaneously. Thus we can do not doing, as the Master said, way, jadral, beyond action and inaction, not trying to do nothing either, flow. As the modern psychologists say, flow, the flow state, where you're not separate from it. You don't need to try to get into the flow because the flow goes through you right now. So the breathing and the relaxing and the sky gazing and then tuning it up so we don't just space out or be dazed. with the self-inquiry question that we practiced before, or the five hungs, we're chanting the hundred syllable Vajrasattva mantra in the middle that we did yesterday. We're flicking your eyes to break up your mental formations. It's hard to think when you're doing that, when you're poking both sides of your brain or whatever. This comes right out of the Dzogchen Rushen teachings. Dzogchen Nundra, Dzogchen Rushen, subtle discernment. Rushen, separating the wheat from the chaff or the milk from the water. Rushen, subtle discernment, seeing the difference between effort and effortless. Samsara, Nirvana, natural and fabricated. 
Ruchen, subtle discernment. So these are some little tips and pointers for how to practice this sky gazing or treacherous practice. Sky space union yoga, sky gazing, treacherous, cutting through, seeing through, being through, just being present, awakeful. The bigger picture, Mahamudra, the great mudra, just the great, the ultimate stance, the ultimate outlook, the bigger picture. Dzogchen, the natural great perfection, just things perfect as they is, as it is. So we talked yesterday about the four great flops. Our eyes or view like the sky, leave it as it is, and our body in meditation like a mountain, leave it as it is, and the energy, the breath, whatever, even the thoughts flow, stream of consciousness, you know, just flow, leave it as it is. Rikpa, the natural state, our authenticity, leave it as it is. No need to try to fabricate that or get more authentic. Just stop faking it. Unless you're faking it to make it as instructed, then just fake it. It's not fake any more than any other effort we have. Everything is spontaneous. Who do you think is faking it? That doesn't mean lying and inauthentic in life. We're giving some rarefied pits instructions here for Dzogchen, non-doing practice. Kuntazampo's meditation. Being Kuntazampo until you see, wow, being stuck with my old self was equally false and inauthentic. I might as well pretend to be Kuntazampo or Tara goddess. Why should I pretend to be um, Shnuko, Shlepo, or Blabo? The three fools. <sighs> oh, I can't do that. Uh. <sighs> this brings us to an important point, a teaching of the high Vajrayana that we don't find in the sutras, in the scriptures, in the sutras, in regular gradual path teachings of Buddhism and all, most world religions, which have this very similar, same moral codes and so on, most religions, where it says that pride is a hindrance, pride is one of the seven deadly sins, whatever. You know, I'm not a scholar of Christian and Christianity, can't even pronounce it. In Buddhism, pride is one of the five hindrances of or five poisons, greed, hatred or aversion, delusion, ignorance, pride and jealousy, all the ego poisons and their many proliferations. But in the Vajrayana, we talk about Najal or deity pride, divine pride. It really means dignity, having the dignity of the lineage of your Buddha nature, identifying with that, not just with the lower self. Oh, I, I'm the best. I'm the smartest guy in the room. I'm the best, whatever, athlete. I'm the best practitioner. I'm in the best yana, Dzogchen yana, better than all other yanas. Or whatever. All the ego and its games. So, Nigel, divine pride, being proud or... or, or Rejoicing. You, you know, when I say something, like I hear somebody did something, 
good. People got some success. I would say, wow, I'm proud of them. Not that I did anything to help it, but I'm proud of them because that's how we say it in English. In Buddhist jargon, it's I rejoice in their merits and accomplishments. Buddha said, if you rejoice in their merits and accomplishments, you get some of it good karma too. You see, because rejoicing is a positive state of mind of unselfish, it's like generous. You with me? So that's what we're talking about. I rejoice in the Buddhaness on my seat. Not I'm better than him. No, I rejoice in the Buddhaness on this seat and that seat and every seat and every flower and every clod of dirt. That's the pride of the lineage, the dignity, Vajra pride, the deityness. Yes, the Buddha nature, my family, my lineage, Prince Zampo on my seat. Fake that till you make it. So that's called Vajra pride or dignity. It's kind of a practice that we have. It's, it's one of the Samayas of the Vajrayana that we don't hear a lot, a lot about. It's kind of tricky in our egotistical, individualistic, competitive days. It's tricky. But in this context, it should be fairly clear. Let go and let Buddha sit on your seat. Not my will, but thine, Lord Buddha. Breathe through me. It's all Kuntazampo's display. Waves, expressions, pseudopods of Rigpa. No problem. So that's a practice, like with pure perception, seeing the light, the Buddha, the divine, and everything. That's a little bit the outer kind. This is more um, deeper. This is the inner kind of identifying with the divine, the Buddhaness, and, and, and um, aligning with that, coming in tune with that. So we call it Vajra pride or deity pride, divine pride in translations. It's really a, more of a dignity kind of thing. It was like... Uh, being the right person in the right place at the right time and just knowing that beyond knowing even if somebody criticizes you oh how is it spiritual just to sit and meditate you should be bowing to god or lighting a candle it's divine pride or conviction to know what you know about that answer to that question how it's spiritual or even important to just sit there and meditate with or without candles or altars or images that's the ultimate. So this is our practice, and I like to call it Kuntazampo's meditation sometimes, where Kuntazampo is just recognizing everything as Kuntazampo, looking in the mirror of emptiness, Kuntazampo, like I exam in the morning. You look in the, the monk looks, the nun looks in the mirror in the morning. And says, There's a Zen story about this. I think it's Ikkyu, the Zen master of ancient Japan. Anyway, you've seen one, you've seen them all. Every morning he woke up and he, I mean, this is the story about like his practice. Every morning, you know, it's like, don't we all wonder what does the master do? Somebody asked me the other day, what do I do all day behind the, the, the screen of the Wizard of Oz? What do I do all day upstairs there? So what does the Zen master do, the great Ikkyu? He wakes up in the morning, this is, he tells what I do. He says, he, I wake up in the morning and I say, Ikkyu, and I go, Hi! That means, yes, it's like in school, you know, they call the names, right? Judy, yes. present, yes, right? Ben, yes. so look, wake up. Surya, hi! <laughs> present and accountable. There are other ways to wake up, as you know, that are not so bright. So this is Kuntazampo's meditation, what we're doing here, really. 
And it's, you don't really find this in books and all. It's a little esoteric. It's kind of from the Western treasure tradition, let's call it. And it takes some kind of pride or dignity or conviction or experience, a, it's a glimpse, you know, introduction, something. That's why it's called secret or initiates only or advanced or highest or consummate. Everybody has some way of putting it. Practice, ultimate practice, non-dual practice, not from here to there, but from here to totally here coming back to who and what you truly are. We're all Buddhas by nature. We only have to recognize who and what we are. Remember that as we studied already. So I think this is a very uh, awakening now, direct access path or portal. That's why I teach it and emphasize it. Along with whatever supportive practices or other practices of compassionate action and the paramitas. We'll talk about that tomorrow. We'll get to action. But I'm talking about meditation more. View and meditation. Other practices, you know, ethical self-discipline and patience and generosity, effort, um, helpfulness, and so on. Other practices of um, attitude transformation, low young mind training, attitude transformation, heart training, or other things. So valuable, loving kindness and compassion practices purification practices, devotional practices for those that resonate with that, etc. Guru yoga, devotional practice is a big part of Tibetan Buddhism. Most people think of Tibetan Buddhism, if they know about it, as a very, you know, ritualistic or complicated, philosophical or monastic or like effortful tradition with many bows and mantras and things to learn and to practice on long retreats and caves and renunciates. And if they know about Tibetan Buddhism, everybody knows about Milarepa, Tibet's greatest yogi, the enlightened one who went from sinner to saint in one lifetime through his assiduous, diligent, long-time practice in a cave, according to the instructions of his guru, Marpa. So when we think of Milarepa, everybody thinks of his effort his great diligence, his effort, his long retreat, his effort, his blazing heat, living in a cave above the snow line in Tibet without a door, without warm clothes, and so on, in his white cotton Indian yogi robes, through inner incandescence, the mystic heat of Tumo. His great efforts is what we think about. But Milarepa himself sang, my lineage is a lineage of devotion. When I'm alone in the mountains, my father Marpa is always with me. All the Buddhas of the past, present, and future are always with me. That's my Milarepa, friends. That's the Milarepa I know and think of. Questions, please. Ah. Judy, can you pass the mic to Judy? <laughs> See, it's not as easy as you think. <laughs> Hello? Am I on? Oh, yeah. Okay. Okay. I, hi, Lama. Um, I hi. wanted to start by thanking you for your teachings this week. Um, they're wonderful, as always, as are you. So I just wanted to say that before. Thank you for the, your wonderful uh, yoga teachings and good heart. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so my question is in light of the bacon cheddar scones that were on the table this morning. I'm the wrong person to ask. I didn't see them. Okay. 
Well, you, I guess uh, you didn't what get table? one then. Right. <laughs> so what, anyway, the question? the question is about, um, well, the bacon cheddar scones, as well as yesterday <laughs> you were talking about um, Jachel Rinpoche. And yes. talking about him, you know, as, you know, this amazing llama and such a, a revered animal rights activist. And you had also mentioned yesterday that um, a lot of llamas or many llamas or some llamas are not vegetarians. So I, I guess my question is like, to me, there's like a disconnect there with, you know, the idea of compassion towards all beings and, you know, the understanding that, you know, in order to eat an animal, it has to die. So, um, you know, and barring health reasons and all that stuff, can you just talk a little bit about vegetarianism and um, how that fits into our practice of compassion and loving kindness towards all beings? Sure. Are you a vegetarian, Judy? I am. Yeah, well, I'm not. So you can't, you know. But so, yes, I so was. Yeah. I was in the 70s and 80s. And our retreats are, and my three retreats were, and so on. Mm -hmm. And my teacher's family was, but most of them. Um, most Buddhists are not vegetarian in the world for various reasons. It's not, it's not even certain that Buddha was a vegetarian, if, you know, according to history. Right. But um, I guess my question is Death how is involved can in all forms of, um, you know, life in the animal realm that we participate in. I mean, we're the human body, we're also animals, let's say. Mm -hmm. So if you're farming, there's death involved with the bugs and the worms and everything. So right. if you're eating vegetables or fruits, you, you know, either there's death with the tilling and the digging or the chemicals or the pesticides, even if you have organic, but just say death, you know, nature is red in tooth and claw, as the poet said. Now, of course, the compassion point of view, we do what we can. So the dollar, so in Tibet, and you know, I, I'm not really an apologist for the old world and the old ways, but in Tibet, having lived there and, you know, see how it is, nothing grew. They lived on the yaks that they herded and the yak products, the meat, the cheese, the yogurt, the milk. That's what they lived on. And they traded that to other countries for salt. And it was very primitive. Mm -hmm. So they grew wheat and they lived on wheat and, and dried barley flour. That was like their granola. And that's what they lived on. Not vegetables, not fruit, not tofu, and so on, which arose in China with its billion people, which was a much more sophisticated society and India. So in Tibet, people generally ate meat, although some tried to be vegetarian, like Chatral Rinpoche and a few other lamas for compassion. So the Dalai Lama, when he came to India, he became a vegetarian, because he could. Right. And then his doctors, after some time, he got older and sick, or they advised him not to. So he, you know, he stopped. But um, that's just some of the thinking. Okay. So you have to choose. So the Dalai Lama, uh, not the Tibetans have a saying, and this is admittedly kind of Tibetan logic, you know, but just hear me out. I know you didn't think of it this way. Isn't it better to eat one animal, one big animal that can feed many people, kill one cow or, or yak, than eat many small ones that involves the death of many? Whether it's insects or bugs or, you know, eels or, you know, shrimp or, you know, many small chickens, rabbits. You know, I'm just saying this Tibetan logic. 
Right. No, I mean, no, I, I would agree. Since you're talking I about would, death and I compassion. I understand that. I understand so the that. Tibetans but you don't even say, have to kill the cow, though, right? You can just drink the milk. Or well, you could just eat yeah. the eggs from the chicken. You don't have to kill the chicken. And you get, well, you know. Well, this is a very rich field. And there's many, you know, there's a whole animal rights movement in the modern world that looks into this. And now we have refrigeration and other things. And we have other ways of protein. Not everybody can live just on milk and cheese and yogurt. Um, so in Tibet... If they found an animal that was dead, they rushed it to the Dalai Lama's place so he would be able to eat. So the cooks would make meat for him that wasn't killed by humans. The thinking was there. Mm -hmm. The idea was there. But the application was very challenging. Okay. But I don't not, And also it's not our issue about whether Tibetan society is good or not. You're talking about compassion now. And so, of course, Buddhists, uh, you know, respect and try to be vegetarian like even in tibet on the full moon and the new moon days we have fast sojong and prayers and we're vegetarian or only eat at noon and things like that so retreats the three-month rainy retreat they would be a vegetarian but compassion is a very you know complicated and interesting subject just like animal rights not everybody in the world believes it, that animals have souls, not even, right, religious. So they're treated mm -hmm. differently than humans. So in Buddhism, at least we try to treat animals and all beings equally as they will have the luminous spirit or Buddha nature. Right, I mean... They can all get enlightened, they can all go to heaven, etc., whatever you call it. Right, I mean, an ant is an animal just as a If you put a match an down, the ant runs away just like the, the rabbit, the, the cat, and, you know, the kid does. Mm -hmm. But, I mean, also, probably if you put a match down, a uh, green you know, leaf moves away, too, in some way. So, you know, we get into consciousness and will, and, you know, there's a cause and effect. It's a complicated area. Are bacteria's beings to be respected? Or what happens if you have giardia? Do you take antibiotics and nuke the bacteria in your stomach, or you just let them turn, have it? Right. Well, there, there's some when skillful the means involved with that, though, right? I yeah, mean, you absolutely. Know, yeah. When the rats are taking over your monastery, do you, do you exterminate them or not? Right. So these are all questions that we all have to deal with. Maybe you don't, but like our monastery in Woodstock had to deal with it. So they called home to the mothership in Nepal, and prayers and, and divinations were made, and they said, call the exterminator and pray for, you know, 49 days for, for killing all the rats. Maybe it was cockroaches, I forget, but it's the point is the same. It was New York. Hard to tell. <laughs> okay. So if you, if you now step back from our thing here, now we're our little Buddhist meditation retreat here in our little Garrison Institute founded with Buddhist themes, and our Dharma movement in America, you know, mostly yoga and meditation and nonviolent and mostly green and progressive, mostly politics, mostly, not entirely, not necessarily. And just look around in the world at what the holy people do in the different religions. Are they vegetarian? Are they, you know, celibate? Do they meditate? I mean, I'm not saying they need to, or they're all equal, I'm just saying. 
sheiks and rabbis are required to get married and have families and be like everybody else and also bring in the poor to their house, you know, like Buddhists in Thailand are required to be a monk or a nun for three years. It's a very different idea of what is compassionate, what is ethical, what is beautiful, what is loving way of being in the world. So I didn't even mention whether they drink booze or eat meat. Just saying, it's very interesting to look at what different of us people think is the most conducive to this very prized or valued, you know, um, way of being, the spiritual life. No doubt some smoke and other things, I don't know, you know. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, can you get enlightened if you smoke? Well, people have told me no, some people. But I, I didn't buy it. I mean, I'm not a smoker, I'm just saying. He said, well, it clogs up your chakras and channels. <laughs> Somebody told me you can't never get enlightened if you've taken LSD. <laughs> I said, Why? They said, I mean, look at my initials. That's bad news. They said, I don't know what you're talking about, but because it clogs up your chakras and channels. I said, have you ever taken it? They said, no. <laughs> I mean, I don't have the final answer. I'm just saying. Right. Okay. Thank you. Okay. Yep. So Hitler was a vegetarian. Yeah, well, you know. I'm just saying. <laughs> <laughs> just comes to mind. I don't know. I don't know where that came from. Thank you. I'm from debate club. <laughs> no, nothing wrong with your question. Just funning on you because you're my sidekick here. So it's a very good question. Peter Singer, the great philosopher ethicist, has written a lot about this to start a whole human animal rights movement. It's really worth looking at his writing and thinking and activism. He may be at Princeton. I think he's uh, Australian. He's written a lot about this area. Very interesting. Peter Singer and animal rights. But even decades ago, people less, um, let's say, philosophical, although I don't know the person, like um, one of the great French actresses practically started PETA, Bridget Bardot or someone, has been activated to reduce the suffering of animals like chicken farms and things since I don't, and, and against fur for I don't know how long, since the 50s or 60s. So these thoughts are important and they're around and they're not just ours, they're not just Buddhist and they're not even just religious issues. Right, and it's a good you know, thing. Fur, <laughs> leather, and you can, by extension you can go further. Silk and the silkworms, how they're boiled to death by the millions. Um, ivory and whatever that, you know. Honey. Honey. Mm-hmm. But you also have to live, you know. You have to, you know, continue. So I have a friend in Vermont who I was with in India, my best buddy. He only wears like, and I'm exaggerating, because there are better words for these things that I can't remember. But in my mind, like plastic shoes, plastic belt, plastic, you know, ski jacket. He's like, you know, plastic man. <laughs> I mean, there may be organic materials for some of those, but many of them are expensive and hard to find. He doesn't ha- have those. <laughs> He's clumping around in his plastic boots, you know, in his, like, plastic jacket instead of having a goose-down jacket or a fur, you know, a nice fur coat like I would have. <laughs> Not. So you have to, you know, draw the line somewhere. 
So we try to live lightly on the earth, and now we're trying to have less carbon footprint and um, save our endangered planet. That's also compassion in action, and we have to really focus on. Okay, thank you. Questions, please. Yes, Ruth. Hi. Uh, last night we were doing Vajrasattva very enthusiastically and I was re-reading the words and all of a sudden I realized I don't know what it means to, that I want to be a Vajra holder and I thought I would like you to explain that. Do you know what a Vajra is? Um, I think it's that, yeah. Mm-hmm. So what is this like in some language besides Sanskrit? Would it be... Unity out of duality, duality, it's unity. Okay, that's a symbolic meaning. I mean, I, th- I was hoping you can say like a scepter, a wand, a lightning bolt, a, you know, like the gods hold the scepter, like Thor holds the lightning bolt. So this comes from Indian mythology. Indra holds the Vajra, the lightning bolts. But what is the lightning bolt of the god? So it's kind of, I don't know, the primordial power. So whatever that means, so um, that's what it means to, like, be a Vajra holder, to, like, uphold the Buddha nature or something. I know power may not be your favorite word, but, you know, we're just talking here. I, I feel like, you know, before, like The before divine I... energy, to, to align with the divine energy. So you're, uh, you're an instrument, an instrument of the divine energy. Because there's really no you to hold it. So you are an instrument of the divine energy, the divine power, the divine energy, the creative, preserving, and transforming forces of the divine energy. Something like that. Kind of like you're resting at the origin of all things. You're like lineage holder. You're upholding the allness, the whole. Not like Atlas with his... The earth on his back. Uh, what a burden. No. That's a little different. Thank you. Yes, this is the symbol of Vajrayana, so-called Tibetan Buddhism. Vajrayana, Mantrayana, Tantrayana, the Vajra. The Vajrasafa. The Vajra being. But what is the Vajra being except our own adamantine, deathless being, the nirvanic unconditioned part of ourselves, whatever you call it. If we call it awareness or consciousness, it's way too anthropocentric. It's way too human-imaged. It's transpersonal. It's not human awareness. It's in the unconscious, too. Whatever Jung called the cosmic unconscious, that's it, too. It's not just awareness or mindfulness or presence of mind, like, but about when we're in deep sleep or coma, it's still there. Our incorruptible inner light or nature, whatever you call it. So that's what that represents. That's why we sometimes call it the diamond. Like the diamond can cut everything but can't be cut. It's indomitable, incorruptible, immutable, vajra, our vajra nature. Good question. So when we see statues holding it, that's what it means. Or like this, in unity, wisdom and, and compassion or a- action. Questions, please. 
Yes. Thank you, Lama. What advice would you have for us when we find ourselves in the moment of death? You mean now or like uh, then, when you're very, 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 very old? When I know it's happening or about to happen, that one. Now well, it now works too. Well, the one that applies to then and now is the Zen saying, just die. But that's probably an oversimplified, it's absolutely true, but a little oversimplified, too simple for most of us. Just be, just do, you do, just be what's happening is a little too simple for most of us. It's not an oversimplification. That's why Buddha said just, you know, just hearing and hearing, not thinking about it, not listening for something, you know, just seeing when seeing. So just die when dying. But of course, one could talk about consciousness and awareness and letting go into the light. And, you know, some people try to do it. I'm not advocating this sitting up or in other ways. On the other hand, we could have practical thoughts about it. Like, you know, whether you want to let yourself end up in an intense care unit with the lights and the paddles and all of that agitation or, you know, and I don't know what, let's call it a more conscious situation chosen by you, the practitioner, like a hospice or somewhere where you can have the music playing of the tradition that, you know, moves you or somebody guiding you or, you know, just like meditate and let go into it. So there's a lot of levels to this question about how to die. Um, the best preparation, I think, is, you know, from the Dzogchen point of view, is like we practice the dying in every moment of letting go of the past and future and you know, letting go into the timeless, like the inner light or just, you know, letting go of the outer and the inner and the great letting go and just being. And then for later, we could talk more. You could read about it, you know. There's a lot of books and teachings about it, you know, so many. I hope that's helpful. Yes, thank you. I mean, this is a you know age-old, timeless, evergreen question. It's huge. There's an excellent book by Doctor. I forget his name. Well known. It might be Newland. Called How We Die, which demystifies a lot of the New Age ideas about it how we die, that most people either drown or the other thing, uh, suffocate or something. You know, lung cancer makes you suffocate and drown, that kind of thing. How we die, not whether we see lights or tunnels or, you know. Of course, there's a lot about that, too, you can read about, not in his book, in other ways. You know, you know Tibetan Book of the Dead, Tibetan Book of Living and Dying is an excellent book to read about things, about the Dzogchen tradition teaching. Chapter 10 of the Tibetan Book of Living and Dying by Solgyal Rinpoche, much recommended. It's called The Innermost Essence, Nintig. It's all Dzogchen teaching. Nintig, The Innermost Essence, Chapter 10 of Tibetan Book of Living and Dying, much recommended. 
Dzogchen view, meditation a little. Um, I'm more of a Woody Allen guy myself, although he also not like Bill Cosby, not uncomplicated character and legacy. Woody Allen, who, you know, is very aware of the saying that everybody's been saying about being one with nature or about being one with things. So he said, I'm not against death. I just don't want to be there when it happens to me. <laughs> Which is funny, but it's also most of our modern or American, like worldly people's approach. Give me drugs. I need, pay, I need, you know, I need to be less there because it's going to be scary, painful, and all, which is true. So this is a very, uh, you know, gray area we have to navigate. So let me end with the Sufi saying, die before you die and you shall never die. And so my ego death, die before you die and you shall never die. Or put it positive, you shall live eternally, whatever. Find the deathless. You know, even Buddha said everything is impermanent, but uh, he called it deathless, deathless nirvana, because nirvana is not a thing. Deathless. So we don't say permanent or eternal, but deathless is there in the original teachings of Buddha. That's a provocative thought I found. What part of us is deathless? That's what I've been looking into. You can't say your nose. You can't say your toes, but maybe it's your mind. No, I don't think it's either your mind. <laughs> Frank Zappa? <laughs> but what is it? When you're in a coma, when you're in deep sleep, you're still alive. What's the animating principle? What is the spirit that flee, flies, flees when you die? Who are we? What are we? What is it? What is the, this, you know, luminous Buddha nature? Whatever, I mean, these are just names on it. What, what is it? That's the interesting question I find. That's the who am I? That's the true identity. Not this well is my well, and that well is their well, and that well is Exxon's well. But you dig down and you get the water table or the, the big, I don't know what, the ocean of, you know, to the fundament, if there's a fundament. You know, whose is it? Whose is it? What is it? Uh, questions. We're almost out of time. Who haven't we heard from? Yes, in the back row, sister. I didn't know I was the back row. Me either. <laughs> Thank you, Mama. Um, some months ago, you had an article or a video in Tricycle where you spoke about relig practicing religion, I believe, versus just the mindfulness practices currently. So life got busy and I didn't get to see the whole thing. I wondered if you'd speak to that article if you remember. <laughs> no, I don't remember. Never mind. I haven't had an article in there in a while, but you never know what's in there. Article, blog, Q&A, excerpt, quote, <laughs> excerpt from book that they put in. So what's your real question? Since you didn't get to the end of the, the whatever it was. Yeah. <laughs> what are you really after here since we're so alone So I guess the real here. question is your... Is mindfulness enough? Is that what you're... I mean, what's your question? That's close enough. <laughs> enough, no, enough for what? What are we trying to do? So I'm coming at this as a uh, religious educator to kids. Okay. 
And mm -hmm. so I just want to be able to speak yes. to your thoughts on that. Mindfulness is not enough, but it, um, it's a lot. And more importantly, it's what's missing from much of religious education. Therefore, maybe it's the crucial missing piece. Like the thumb isn't a lot, but the thumb and the dike is a hell of a lot. Right? Agreed. Agreed. So religious education, spirituality, menschkeit, you know, maturity, lots of things are there. The mindfulness piece is usually missing, right? Parroting our prayers, wishing we were elsewhere, you know, how we mostly in the modern world, postmodern, relate to religion. So the mindfulness, the presence, the, the active, interested, attentiveness, you know, not so much there in those trainings. So it's a very important contribution. But it's not enough. Mindfulness is taken, is extracted from the whole, if it's extracted from the context that it's part of, the recipe for enlightenment, then, you know, is there ethics and compassion or unselfishness or attitude training or emotional management or anything in it? Or is it just mindfulness for stress reduction or chronic pain? You know, mindfulness for effectiveness in business or, you know, to be the mindful sniper or what? <laughs> and where does religion come into that? Well, you're a religious educator, you, you, you know. <laughs> mindfulness is not enough, but mindfulness is a great thing and it's what's missing in many cases. So in that way, maybe it needs to be overemphasized now, but the pendulum swings, you know, it's missing and then it's all that there is suddenly in some circles. So it's not enough, in my view, for enlightenment, for a well-rounded spiritual life, for transforming the being and the community. Also, people don't even understand usually what mindfulness is and it gets reduced to just one thing, like concentration or relaxation. When mindfulness has a lot of aspects, if you look it up, you know, it, where it's coming from. Like friendly openness. Like insight. Like mindful of how things work. Seeing how things interconnect, you know, what causes what. Not just concentration. So it, it includes insight, which has other implications or, require, you know, developments. So I hope that's helpful. It is. Thank you very much.